Uh, <clears throat> people have asked me at some time or other why I chose to do a study of Job, and I've tried to explain it to them. <laughs> uh, but one of the things that's going to become maybe apparent to you this morning is that I've been orchestrating our study of Job in such a manner that we would come to the very text this morning that we come to. And that has not been an easy task. We are going to be looking at chapter 19. Before we do that, just a little bit about 18. This is Bildad's second response. He's actually responding to Job's response to uh, to to build that or to to Zo, to Eliphaz, and uh, we need to just keep that in context. Uh, but anyway, just just um, you know, we're not going to read the eighteen even because it's just the same old message over and over again that we've heard from him before, and we've heard it from his other two friends, and that is basically that. The suffering is always a result of sin, therefore uh, Job is not only a sinner, he's a really bad sinner because he's suffering so badly, uh, and he just needs to confess it, and he needs to repent of it, and if he will do that, and they're encouraging Job to do this, and if you will just repent of your sin, then God will bless you uh, once again. I'm going to read chapter 19. This is Job's response to those words. Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have uh, cast reproach upon me. Uh, are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, Know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net around about me. Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass. He has set darkness upon my pass. He has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone, and my hope he has... Uh, has he pulled up from uh, up like a tree? He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me in a camp around my tent. He has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants Count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I'm a stench to her children of my mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and so my flesh and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me, have mercy on me. O oh, you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? 
Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say, how will we pursue him? And the root of the matter is found in him. Be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know that there is a judgment. It is hard to imagine the suffering that Job has endured now for many months. And not just the wounds of his body, but he's also suffered uh, spiritually a very great deal. I don't imagine, I know that all of us have had trials and tribulations in our lives, but I can't imagine any one of us being able to say that I have suffered like the, the, the Saint Job did uh, in those days so many years ago. At this point, just, just imagine this, uh, of going from where Job was just a few months before this on top of the world. A pleasant life, a full life, a fulfilling life. A big and wonderful family and, and all kinds of material possessions and, and great renown uh, you know, shared amongst the people around him. Very highly respected. To go from that to Nothing. would be an amazing thing for anyone to endure. And there is within us an understanding of some of the things that he says. We can see ourselves saying the same sorts of things or thinking the same sorts of thought. Why? Because we've done it ourselves and we've never endured what Job has endured. We've all been there. Physically, his friends can do nothing to give him any relief at all. There's no one that can give him any relief other than God himself, and everyone knows that at this point. But Job's friends have been given an opportunity to help him spiritually, to help him emotionally and mentally. But the truth is, they're a constant message, maybe phrased in different words. They have not helped their friend one iota. What they've done has actually made his suffering far worse than it would have been otherwise. Because he feels not only deserted by God, which he's expressed in many ways all the way through this book so far, and he's going to continue to do that. He feels deserted by God. He also feels deserted by every person. In particular, his three friends. We should all be able to relate to these sorts of things to some degree. Maybe not to this magnitude, but to some degree, we should all be able to relate to both sides of this picture. 
because we have all suffered in different ways in this life, some of us more than others. There's no doubt about that. But we all know what suffering is because we have experienced it. But we've also all been given opportunities to reach out and help other people. When they were in the trials and tribulations they found themselves to be in. There's a sense in which we can relate to where Job is. There's also a sense in which we can relate to where those three friends happen to be. The sad thing is the message they just keep pouring out upon him is that your downfall has been your own doing. You have done this to yourself. Therefore, you alone can correct it. It's a rare thing for people to develop the art of knowing what to say and what not to say, and also knowing how to say it, or how to not say it. Very few people I think I've known in my lifetime that really understood this. But it's a principle that all people should know because we all have experienced such things. I can remember when, when Matthew was a little child, he loved the movie Bambi. <laughs> I mean, he wanted to watch Bambi pretty much every day for, for I don't know how long it was, probably for a couple of years or more. Bambi, 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 Bambi. And he seemed to never, ever get tired of it. But there's a particular scene in it that always touched my heart, and probably when I mention it, you're going to remember it yourself, and that is... Uh, he had this rabbit friend named Thumper, and uh, at one point, Thumper's mother reproves him because he was making fun of Bambi because he was walking with a wobble. And what she says to Thumper, probably for the umpteenth million time, is if you can't say something nice, don't say nothing at all. It's actually known to some people as the Thumperian principle <laughs> or Thumper's rule or Thumper's law. These three men who were supposed to be some of the wisest upon the face of the planet have not learned this simple lesson of knowing when to speak and when not to speak and knowing what to say and what not to say. Notice here, I'm not encouraging us not to ever speak, but what I'm encouraging all of us to do is to speak with care, to speak with caution, and never to speak with a holier-than-thou attitude. Humbleness and humility on our part will do far more than judgmentalism will. The sad thing is very often one of the charges you will, you will hear commonly spoken by unchurched, unbelieving people toward church people, toward believers, is 
that they come across as being judgmental. When they, in fact, can look into their life and they can see the flaws in that life that maybe the person, him or herself, doesn't see. The church very, uh, very often in the world is looked upon as being a church full of hypocrites. And part of that is because we don't know when to speak and when not to speak, and we don't know how to do it when we do. Did Jesus say some very hard things? Yes. Did he say very hard things to people he cared about? Yes. He said them. But he is the absolute perfection of that rule. To speak the truth. But to speak it in the rightful manner. Job at this point believes that he has no one. No one at all. We know that he's lost his family. In verses 13 through 19, he mentions his brothers kind of indirectly. He also mentions his guests, his servants, his maidservants, his wife, even young children. I mean, there's no one, not one person that he knows of, that he can lay his hands on, that he, can, that, that, that he knows is going to come to him and give him peace and give him comfort and just love him where he is without judging him. See, this is what he's getting from these three guys. The only thing he's getting, he's looking for comfort, he's looking for solace, and the only thing he's getting is rock-hard judgment. He doesn't ever say, but I would imagine he really wants to say is, why can't you guys just give me just a little bit of compassion? Just a little. Everything you say comes across as cold and hard. Maybe true of a lot of it. But the manner in which you're saying what you're saying does not help. It, in fact, hurts. It hurts deeply. He even mentions his wife. The only words we have uttered from her up this far is curse God and die. <laughs> That's his advice his wife gave him in regard to the circumstances he finds himself in. So where has she been in all of this? We really don't know. But she's not there. My breath is strange to my wife. And what does that mean? 
I know that one of the commentators I read was just very insistent. It was saying that, that there was such a stint about a stink, stench about Job now because of the uh, corruption of his flesh. There was just this horrendous odor that she couldn't come close to him. But I would say to you, it may be something else entirely, and that is that, uh, that his wife is just even has distanced herself from him. He feels deserted. He feels like there literally is no one left that he can turn to. And he blames God for it. God is the one who has turned all of these people against me. All of us, to varying degrees, know what it feels like to be deserted to some degree. We've all been at that place at some time or another. Whether it was really true or not, we have felt that way. It's part of the human condition. It's because... Because there's sin, uh, there are no perfect human relationships. We've all had doubts about others, and we've had doubts about ourselves. Most Christians, it's to some degree, have understood this in a context that other people have not so much and that is I would imagine most of you if not all of you to some degree and maybe sometimes just to a very slight degree have suffered some degree of persecution because of your faith in Jesus Christ maybe you've been ostracized by some of your friends and your family uh, because you're of your faith in Jesus I know that there are people in this room, you have family members, people you care dearly about that, that have made it pretty clear to you that they really don't want to have much to do with you and it's strictly because you have your faith in this fellow named Jesus. Maybe they knew you before you became a believer and in their eyes you were great before and now you are a mess. It hurts the deepest, I think, when there are people that are very important to us, people that we're closest to. You know, it's one thing if a stranger or someone that we vaguely know has, uh, has a, a bad impression of us or says some things to us uh, contrary to uh, the relationship and, and that sort of thing. But it's a different thing when it comes from people that are closest to us. It has a way of wrenching our heart in a manner that it would not happen otherwise. I mean, I'd like to be able to stand before you this morning and tell you that my family has always been very supportive of me and my, my faith and, uh, you know, and, and in my practice of the Office of Teaching Elder and the PCA. Uh, 
But sadly, I don't really feel that much. See, I left my Southern Baptist roots. And in the impression I get from my family is this, is we're glad you're a believer, but it would be much better if you were a Southern Baptist believer, not one of these Presbyterian people. Sometimes I feel like I'm almost looked upon as if I am a traitor to my heritage. And what I want to do is pull out my Bible and show them why I'm right and they're wrong. which I probably could do to some degree. But we all understand what it's like to feel that way. But we also know that it comes with a turf. It would be crazy for us to believe that as we become Christians that that our life uh, in no way would resemble in no way the life of Jesus Christ. You know, what we suffered in life is just an inkling of what he suffered. But it gives us some idea or some, some bridge or some ground to work from to try to relate to him. Job makes an appeal in verses 20 through 22 to his friends to cease pursuing him in hurtful way. Like God has. In other words, show me a little mercy. Stop adding to my grief. Twenty-three and twenty-four. He 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 talks about how he wishes his words were written down, and guess what, Job? They were. You and I benefit from that. We're reading the very words that were written so many, many years ago this morning. Translated into English, yes, but still the words, the same meaning. Job's story is part of holy writ. The word of God handed down from generation to generation to us through history and time. A golden nugget, a jewel in the crown. We have the very dialogue right here before us this morning that was spoken so many years ago. Hallelujah for the Bible. Hallelujah for the book of Job. I would imagine that before we started this study, if there was anything you knew about Job, you probably knew chapter 19, verse 25. Where Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that he will stand upon this earth. Probably the most famous verse in all of Job, in part because Handel in 1741 wrote an oratorio entitled Messiah. 
which eventually became one of the best known and most frequently performed choral works of Western music inside the church and outside the church. Especially around Christmas time. And like I said before, I've orchestrated our study of the book of Job to bring us right here this very morning. I've had some people ask me, why Job? Why Job? Why Job? There's so many other things we can do. Why are we doing Job? This, my friends, is why we're doing Job. He's alluded a number of times to this mysterious person, this being. In 9.33, he, 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 he cries out that there would be an arbitrator between him and God. In 16.19, he says this, he says, My witness is in heaven, and he who testifies me is on high. My whole thing is we see this pattern, because there are a lot of people who would try to explain this away. And I'm not going to do that this morning. In other words, when he says Messiah, he doesn't mean what you and I think he means. Messiah. Redeemer. The one who will redeem him from his sins. But we understand at the same time, at the very best, if Job does have an understanding of this being, this intercessor, this intermediary, he certainly doesn't understand it near to the degree that you and I do. Because so much history has unfolded since then. This Redeemer has actually come and this Redeemer has actually stood upon the earth. And he's come to save his people, Job being one of those. So we have no excuse. We have none. For us to deny the Messiah, for us to, decide, to, to deny the Savior is craziness. Or would be craziness. Because we have so much more of the story than Job did. We're celebrating the birth of that very Messiah into the world. Not only that, we have through the Gospels and the epistles of the apostles, not a complete picture, but a very sufficient picture of the life and the times of Jesus Christ from the time of his birth until the time of his ascension back into heaven. And all of the details in between.
We also know that that very Messiah right now as we speak sits in the heavenly throne room where he indeed serves as our heavenly advocate, our intermediary, our intercessor. He has laid claim to us. We are his. He will stand upon the earth. He has stood upon the earth. He will stand again upon the earth. This mysterious Messiah is Jesus. The Son of God, and yet the very Son of Man, who came into the world to save Job from his sins, who came into the world to save us from our sins, who came into the world to save me from my sins. There are those who think we make too much out of Christmas. We don't know the day of the week. We don't know for certain even the month of the year, and we don't know even the year for certain that these things took place. But we know they did. We know that Jesus in his life accomplished for us that which we do not accomplish. He did it for us. He lived that perfect life of absolute righteousness before God the Father Almighty. He suffered far more than even Job did. He suffered unbelievably not because of anything that he had done wrong. And I remind you that Job is suffering not because he's done anything wrong. Because we understand this lesson, you know, and and what he keeps getting from his three friends is this, and this is probably what Job believed before, and that is this, that any time he suffers because of sin, because of your sin, it's God's way of getting even with you. And the more you suffer... The worse your sin is. But we've argued from the very beginning that that is true in some cases, but it's not always true. That very often the best of us suffer a great deal, and Jesus is the biggest example of it. It's also been true down through the history of the church. That God tells us that as a Christian, your life is not going to be perfect. That there are going to be times when you suffer. And he actually promises that we will suffer in this world. But what he does promise is this, is in the midst of your suffering, I will be there with you. I will not leave you. I will not desert you. 
And as much as Job believes at this point that even God has deserted him, and maybe sometimes you feel like God has given up on you too, the truth of the matter is God has not. The truth of the matter is that God will not. The truth of the matter is God cannot. He is never, ever against us. He is always, always, always for us. It may not seem like it. It may not feel like it at the time. But God is orchestrating everything that comes to pass to bring upon you the fruition of all that he has promised you. And he is faithful always in what he promises. Celebrate. Rejoice. If you know Jesus Christ, I don't see how you could do anything else. He is your Savior. He is your Messiah. He loves you far more than you even love yourself. You are His. He has laid claim to you. Celebrate. Don't hold back. As we so often do. Let the joy within you flow forth like Niagara Falls. Amen.